Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be with you uh, this morning, uh, particularly to see old faces, uh, but also to see new faces. Um, uh, if we haven't met, uh, we'll look forward to meeting you after the service. Uh, I worked here as a ministry apprentice uh, in 2013 and 14, uh, I think. Uh, and so it's always a great joy to come back here. Uh, in fact, uh, in a sense, learned how to preach here. Um, so you guys can let me know afterwards whether I've improved at all. Um, uh, but I also want to say, uh, particularly, Kate and I are very thankful uh, for the support from this church, for the ministry we do uh, on campus, uh, and the support for us uh, personally. Uh, we really value that enormously and are so thankful for you guys. Um, I want to say as well, we were, um, uh, we were planning to do a little um, uh, supporters event this afternoon. Um, uh, that was probably a silly idea from us, given that it's Father's Day uh, and there's a lot going on. So a lot of people weren't able to make it. So we decided just to cancel it for um, today. Um, but um, uh, if you weren't able to make it or were hoping to, uh, please do be in contact like uh, many of you have already. Uh, we would love over the next few months uh, to try and get in contact with you as well uh, and to be able to catch up with you. Uh, but it is a great joy to be here. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning with a question. Whose voice is loudest in your life? Or to put it another way, who have you entrusted authority to in your life? Uh, It's an important question because our world is currently struggling with the issue of authority. The issue of who to trust. And as usual, when our world grapples with these kind of ideas, they usually don't do a great job. On the one hand, our world is rejecting traditional forms of authority. Uh, You may have seen this if you look at all the research and the polls. Uh, Trust in institutions like politics, like universities, like religions uh, is plummeting. Uh, People in those places over a long period of time uh, have demonstrated that they are not looking after others. They're not interested in those that they serve, but are rather in it for the money or the power or the prestige. Uh, But that doesn't mean that our world has stopped putting their trust in those in things. It just means that we've sort of changed who we've been putting our trust into. Uh, Our world now spends a huge amount of time on social media, listening maybe to friends, but actually more likely hearing different voices uh, that are amplified that often suit our predispositions. Uh, Or we put our trust in celebrity culture. Uh, If you were wondering why, uh, I think it was this week or maybe the week before, Shaquille O'Neal, the famous American basketball player, was standing next to the Australian Prime Minister, spruiking an Australian constitutional amendment. Well, this is why. Uh, Albo was banking on the trust and authority of Shaquille O'Neal as an authority, as a celebrity authority. But of course, as the world, we ignore the convenient fact uh, that these people generally also aren't in it for us either. Uh, They are also making huge amounts of money and power and influence from their brands and who they are. But the problem for us as a church uh, is that we need to realise that this is not just a problem out there, it's a problem in here as well. We too have the question of authority in our lives. We too will listen to celebrities or social media personalities or our favourite podcaster and implicitly trust them. They're an authority that we listen to. And so we let them shape who we are, 
what we do, what our preferences are, what our priorities are, why we do certain things. And so this morning, as we come to God's words, we're going to be reminded that whether you're not a Christian here this morning and you're exploring, or you've been a Christian for 80 years, it is Jesus who is the authority we need to listen to. It is Jesus whose voice we need to listen to. We need to be making sure that he sits at the top of our authority list. And not just say that in words, but also in the way that we act uh, and act out our priorities in our lives. Uh, So that's what we're going to be having a look at it. Uh, So before we jump into the text, uh, I'm going to pray again for us. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that your word is truth. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us as your spirit works on our hearts and our minds, uh, that you'll be teaching those of us who need to be taught, that you'll be rebuking those of us who need to be rebuked, that you'll be bringing comfort to those of us who need to be comforted. And in all of this, uh, that we would remember that your son Jesus has authority over death and that shows us that you are a God who has come to help us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, keep the Bibles open in front of you. Uh, I'm going to work through this text together. Uh, And this morning we have two stories, uh, two miracles. Uh, And as you look at them, you might think that perhaps they're a little bit distinct. Uh, They're different characters, they're in different places. And it's easy to think that Jesus is just kind of randomly walking around the Jewish countryside, just kind of doing miracles. But as we jump into this text this morning, we're going to see that there's actually nothing particularly random about it. Uh, That these stories have been intentionally placed here by the author Luke. Uh, And as we notice the similarities about them, we'll begin to understand the picture that Luke is trying to paint for us. Uh, But more than that, that there is a message that Jesus is communicating through these events to us. Uh, And so the first uh, similarity that we notice about these stories is that both of these stories uh, are about death. Death haunts and hovers over both of these stories. Uh, You can see this uh, in the first story, uh, in chapter 7, verse 2, we read there, read with me there. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Now, the servant wasn't dead yet, but the author clearly adds in the detail to show us this this man was on death's doorstep. All other options had been exhausted. Uh, This man is on the ventilator. He's in palliative care. The man is about to die. Uh, And not just any man. This is a man who was useful, who was loved by his master, Uh, a man who clearly gave life and love to those around him. Cruel is a de- uh, death is a devastating thing. Uh, but we see it more clearly in the second story. Have a look at verse 11 there. Uh, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Uh, In this story, uh, the son is definitely dead now, dead long enough for all the funeral arrangements to kick in. Uh, But again, the details that Luke gives us here paints a more vivid picture. This is the only son 
of his mother, who is a widow. And this is crucial for us. Uh, In the ancient Near East, including Israel, it is the men in the family who are the breadwinners. But more than that, it is through the male line that the inheritance comes. The death of the last remaining male in the family is essentially the death of the family at large. The family line will now disappear. And the surviving females are now placed in an incredibly precarious position. Now, to be fair, Israel at this point actually had incredibly progressive laws when it came to this, particularly about how to care for the widow and the destitute. Uh, But as we all know, laws actually depend on the people enforcing them. And so it's no particular guarantee that this widow is going to be looked after. Which means that this story is about death on multiple levels. The death of a son that tragic event of a parent having to bury their child, the death of a family line, and the death of any security or hope that the widow might have had. Which is why I think we get at this point this beautiful line from Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds to this woman who is facing incredible suffering and death. It's the same Actually, I think as he thinks about you in your suffering. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. It's important for us just to pause here for a moment because this is our God. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Jesus' heart going out to that person who is suffering. A God of infinitely more compassion and love than we could ever imagine. But why death at this point in Luke's Gospel? Well, this is the first time that Jesus really deals with death. Uh, His miracles thus far have included uh, driving out demons, he's healed the sick, he's uh, caught some fish, I'm pretty sure. But this is the first time that he has actually faced death. In a sense, this is the first time that his authority as as the Messiah, as the Son of God, is tested by death. That old enemy that haunts us all. Death, that is the wages of our sin. And so this brings us to the second point of similarity in these stories. Both of these stories then are about the authority of Jesus over death. Uh, The immediate context raises this for us. We've just come out of uh, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And the very last thing and image that Luke uses is that of the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. But what prompts this story is the complaint uh, from Jesus, essentially, about his disciples. Uh, If you look look at chapter 6, verse 46, uh, he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. And then he tells this story of the wise and foolish man who builds their house on the rock and the sand. And this is about who Jesus is, about what authority that he has. Will you trust him? Will you trust him so much that you will actually build your life on him? Jesus was frustrated that his disciples were acknowledging his authority in name only. 
And we can see this in both stories, that this theme is coming through. Uh, And we see it in the two different lenses uh, that we get. Uh, So let's have a deeper dive into the first story, uh, where we see essentially uh, this idea through a Roman lens. Uh, And the first story contains a couple of surprises. The big one really is that this is a Roman centurion. Uh, Jesus has just criticized his own disciples for misunderstanding him. And now the picture that is presented of a wise man, someone who recognizes Jesus' authority and trusts him, is a Roman centurion. Not a Jew, a Gentile. But more than that, a leader in the occupying army that is occupying the country. Uh, And we know that he is uh, a wise man. We're given this flag because of the way that the Jewish elders give him a reference. If you have a look at verse 4b there, uh, it reads, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Now, I don't think that this is saying that Jesus is somehow obligated to help the man. What it's trying to tell us is that this is a man who has respect for the conquered people. But more than that, we're told that he has even built a synagogue. Uh, This would seem to imply that this man is not just a good person, but he might even be a God-fearing Roman. That is someone who has seen the wisdom and truth in the Jewish religion, and so has turned and followed Yahweh. And this would seem to check out in the way that he then responds to Jesus. Have a look at verse 6b. Through uh, his messengers and his servants, he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just pause and think about that for a moment. That is an extraordinary thing for a Roman centurion to say to a Jewish rabbi. And then verse 7, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Uh, What we're getting here is a way of understanding Jesus' authority using the picture of military order. Uh, The Roman army was famously probably the most efficient, brutal and successful army really ever. I was listening to a podcast with a few historians the other day uh, who were asking the question, uh, who would win in a battle between Caesar's Roman legions in about 40 BC and William the Conqueror's army in 1066? They answered, the Roman legions. That's pretty extraordinary, right? Why? Well, because the Roman army was a full-time standing army with the resources of an entire empire behind them, which meant they were able to be drilled and shaped and moulded into a lethal fighting unit. They had the logistics, they had the strategy, and they had the structure. And the Roman army was a highly ordered and hierarchical army. Uh, A legion had around 5,000 men, but the heartbeat of these legions were these smaller units of 80 to 100 men called a century, led by a centurion. Uh, We have uh, a description of a centurion uh, by a writer called Vegetius in his book, Dera Militaris, which is really the only surviving uh, military manual we have about the Roman army. Uh, And he describes a centurion like this. He says, a centurion is to be vigilant, temperate, active, 
and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping a proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright. I think there are two things that kind of stand out for us uh, here. Uh, Firstly, the centurion needs to be readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Uh, Here is a man who understands how authority works. The discipline to accept an order from a superior and to act on it was what made the legions work. And when a superior ordered something, you did it immediately without question. And secondly, the centurion was in charge of the discipline of his men. He had complete and total charge over his men. Their lives were literally in the centurion's hands. That's how much authority he had. And so with this in the back of your mind, come back to verse 8 again and read that in light of this. The man says, the centurion says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And now think about how the centurion is applying this to Jesus. He is saying that Jesus has this kind of authority over death. That Jesus can literally just say to death, go, and death will go. You can see why Jesus is astonished at this man's faith, particularly when contrasted with his own disciples' faith. This centurion has correctly identified Jesus and understood the correct level of authority that Jesus has. And so how does this story end? Well, it ends with Jesus doing just that. He tells death to go and it goes. Verse 10, Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The servant who had been on death's door had been brought back to the land of the living because Jesus just said, go. And so that's the first story, where the authority of Jesus, uh, where we see the authority of Jesus over death, uh, and we see that through this Roman lens. But let's now look at this second story that looks through a slightly different lens, a Jewish lens the lens of the Old Testament. Because on the face of it, this seems like a little bit of a run-of-the-mill kind of miracle. Jesus comes in, sees the dead son, raises him from the dead, hands him back to his mother. Pretty simple. But the key to understanding this story is actually the people's reaction. Uh, Have a look at verse 16. Look at how they respond to this. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet, they say, has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. Uh, The answer is, uh, the question is rather, what prompts them to ask or to say, this is a great prophet? Uh, Why don't they say healer or teacher or magician or something like that? And the answer is that there is actually a lot more going on here. Because this is not just a miracle, this is a type scene. That is, Jesus, by doing this miracle, is intentionally drawing attention back to two episodes in Jewish history, particularly in the Old Testament. And there are a few clues that this is what he is doing. Uh, Firstly, we're told that we're in Nain, which is in the north of Israel. 
Last chapter as well, it's mentioned in verse 17 of chapter 6 that people from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon were there. Secondly, it's the resurrection of the son of a widow. Uh, Those details there are important. And thirdly, we see a sort of a pattern in the way that Jesus acts. Jesus has compassion on the widow who is vulnerable, raises the son, and then these words are recorded, Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, if you're listening to the first reading, or even the kids' talk, uh, perhaps you're there by now. This is basically the same miracle that Elijah performs in 1 Kings 17. In 1 Kings 17, where in Zarephath, where is Zarephath? It is in the north of Israel. Actually, it's not quite right. It is further north, where? In the coastal region between Tyre and Sidon. Secondly, it's the resurrection of the son of a widow. And thirdly, we see this pattern in the way that it acts out. Elijah has compassion on the widow who is vulnerable, raises the son, and then we're told, uses these words, he then gave him back to his mother. Now, if you're not convinced that those two things are linked, well, how do the people then respond to Jesus? What do they say? They say, hold on, you're the prophet. You've come to the same geographical location. You've done exactly the same miracle. You must be Elijah. But not just Elijah, perhaps also Elijah's disciple Elisha, who a little bit later in 2 Kings does exactly the same miracle with the Shunammite woman and her son. And so the people look at him and say, you have the same authority that these prophets had. What authority? The authority that proves that God's word is powerful and that God will act to save his people. Uh, Actually, in the Old Testament, it's really interesting. You really only see miracles in two places. There are two places where there's this kind of flurry of miracles. Uh, Firstly, you see it with Moses and Aaron at the Exodus. God proves the authority of Moses to Pharaoh using miracles. And in the broader context there, we have Israel where everything looks lost, they're in slavery, and yet these miracles tell us that God will save his people. And where's the other part in the Old Testament where there's a sort of a flurry of miracles? Well, it's the Elijah and Elisha stories. And the effect of these miracles is put in the mouth of the widow of Zarephath at the end of of the first reading. She says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And again, for the widow, this happens at a time when Israel is failing. The kings of Israel have abandoned God, injustice is everywhere, and Elijah and Elisha are proofs that God hasn't abandoned his people, but will save them, that the word of the Lord will come. And it is this that the people in Luke 7 have understood. You see, I don't think this is a case of them mistaking Jesus for a prophet. Sure, they might not fully understand who he is at this point, but actually they have correctly identified Jesus as the prophet who is the fulfillment of Elijah and Elisha. And also they have correctly identified what this means. What does it mean? Well, it means that God is on the move again. He has come to help his people. 
the word of the Lord was coming. Something big was about to happen. And so let's put it all together then. These two stories are telling us something important. Jesus' authority over death means that he has come to help his people. And Jesus' authority is absolute. Like a centurion in an army, he can simply say, go and death will go. But his authority is also like the prophets of old. And he wields this authority in order to help his people. As a sign that God is coming. That he is not helpless in the face of the dysfunction of this world. That he can and he will conquer. Jesus' authority over death means that he has come to help his people. Uh, And of course, as we look forward uh, in Luke's gospel, what he demonstrates in part here, we know that he will demonstrate in full later. Because what happens when we get to the climax of Luke's gospel? Well, Jesus will demonstrate his authority over death when he himself stands at death's door as he is crucified. As he steps over the threshold into death itself, as he dies on the cross. And he will show the military efficiency as he commands death to go as he lies in the grave for three days. And his authority will be proved as he is resurrected from the dead, the greatest of all miracles, the ultimate proof of his authority over death and the ultimate proof that God has come in order to help us. This is who Jesus is. And this is what he has come to do. The centurion saw it clearly. The widow and the crowds up in Nain saw it. And so the question that we are left with is, do we see this clearly? Do we really believe that Jesus has this authority over death? And that he has used this authority to defeat death and save his people? Well, I can tell you the difference for the 140-odd ES students who, a couple of weeks ago, bought these jumpers, which are very white, very obvious. They put these on and they walked onto the university campus. Now, this was publicly identifying them as Christians. And you might say that this would take an enormous amount of courage to do that, to public identify yourself as a Christian in an institution that isn't necessarily friendly towards you. And certainly that it would take you courage to do that with your friends and classmates, for your faith to not just be something that is yours, but that you want them to know as well. But it wasn't courage necessarily, right? It was conviction. A belief and a conviction from these ES students, that Jesus is the greatest authority. That he has authority over death. Because if that is true, then what authority could stand against them? If Jesus can tell death to go and he goes, then what is there for them to be afraid of? There is no argument that anyone is going to come up to that is going to drive God away. But more than that, the message that they brought was the most important message that they could. At the beginning, we started with that idea that our world is confused about authority, about where to find it, who to trust. Our world is really bad at trying to figure out who to listen to. 
But the message that the students were bringing was not just that Jesus has authority, that he is someone you can listen to, but that this God is trustworthy, that he has come to help, that this God who has authority over death is also the God who has compassion, a God who saw the suffering of the widow and whose heart went out to her, a God who has entered into the suffering and death of this world in order to help you and me. And this is incredible news, and it is this news that these 140 students knew and wanted others to know as well. Because what better thing to learn at university than the fact that the God of the universe has entered into this word in order to be known and in order to be able to save you. And so we began this morning with a question, let's finish with some questions as well. What does it mean for you? What changes in your week when you take this truth with you? When you remember that Jesus has authority over death itself and has come to help his people? How does that face the challenges and stresses? How does that change the challenges and stresses that you face? How does it impact the decisions that you make? Financial decisions, how you spend your time, how you treat those around you. What does it mean for you that Jesus has authority over death and that he has come to help us? Let me pray as we finish there. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has conquered death. We thank you that he has shown his authority over death. Uh, as he died, as he passed through the grave, and as he rose victorious uh, on the third day. And I pray, Father, that you would help us all, as we come into this week, to hold this close to our hearts, that this would be the voice that we listen to, this is the truth uh, that we would use to prioritize our lives, to order our lives, to shape our lives, to mold our lives. Uh, And we pray, Father, uh, that this truth would help us as we go out into the world, Uh, that we would be witnesses to you, to what you have done, so that we can love those around us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.